When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Breaking news right now, some exclusive new CNN reporting about Donald Trump and the investigation into those classified documents found on his property. The lead starts right now. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. It does not quite work that way, though. New to CNN, sources say Trump was aware of the declassification process before he left office. The new evidence that could soon be in the hands of the special counsel. And paparazzi following Prince Harry and wife Meghan Markle in New York in a scene described as, quote, near catastrophic. We have new descriptions to CNN from a member of their security detail. Plus tonight, a vote on taking action against Republican Congressman George Santos after his many lies and a federal indictment, and he pleaded guilty to a crime in another country. Is there enough bipartisan animus to kick Santos out of Congress. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with a CNN exclusive major developments today in the Justice Department special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified materials taken from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and then taken from Mar-a-Lago by the FBI last year. Multiple sources tell CNN that the National Archives has informed former President Trump that it plans to hand over to special counsel Jack Smith 16 records, 16 records from Trump's time in the White House, 16 records that may provide critical evidence showing that Trump and his top advisors were aware of the declassification process during his time as president. It's likely a key element of Jack Smith's criminal probe into the former president. And of course, that awareness would fly in the face of Trump's public comments about declassification. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? There doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. A source close to Trump's legal team tells CNN that the former president may go to court to try to prevent those presidential records, those 16 records, from being handed over from the National Archives to Jack Smith. But he'll have just one week before the National Archives says they're giving the records to special counsel Jack Smith. CNN's Jamie Gangel is here. And Jamie, you obtained this, uh, this copy of a letter right. that the archives sent to Trump. Tell us the key headlines. So what the letter, can I just start by saying you can't declassify just by thinking. No, there's about a very it. intricate, long process. Uh, it's, and, and what these 16 records show are that 
Trump and his closest allies were aware, his closest advisors were aware during four years in the White House that there was a correct process to safeguard classified material, that it didn't just happen with a wave of of a hand. Or just by thinking about it. Correct. Uh, So the acting archivist, yesterday was her last day in the job, Uh, Ms. Wall writes in the letter, quote, The 16 records in question all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you personally, to Mr. Trump, concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records. Just to underscore those words, Jake, some of them directed to you personally. We don't know what's in those 16 records yet, uh, but it suggests these records provide evidence Trump had firsthand knowledge that you don't just dis- declassify records, that there is a formal process to do it. Yeah, and of course, it was just uh, even uh, one week ago today uh, that he told Caitlin Collins, uh, Mr. Trump, at, at the town hall uh, that he said this, and again, it's incorrect, that he had every right to, to take the records with him. And in so doing, they became declassified. Take a look. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? I had every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Do you still have any classified documents in your possession? Are you ready? Do you? No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. It's interesting that he's citing the Presidential Records Act, and then he says things that are not what the Presidential Act, Records Act says. That's not how it works. Let, let's say for, you know, the dozenth time, not only isn't that how it works, he had no right to take them. When uh, a president leaves the White House, those records uh, go to the National Archives. They are the custodian of them. And again, he could not have automatically declassified just by thinking about something. Uh, or taking them or with him. Them. And Trump has tried to assert executive privilege, right? Tell us more about that. So well, what we know is that he tried to exert executive privilege. The White House, which also plays a role in this, said they would not stand in the way. What's key here is the special counsel's role. They uh, said to the archives, quote, It is likely that the 16 records contain evidence that would be important to the grand jury's investigation. And they also said they were prepared to go to court to prove that. So while Trump now has seven, eight days to object in court, uh, in the past he hasn't. And there, you know, these records seem to indicate very strongly that it is critical to the investigation. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed and Evan Perez to this conversation. Paula, you have background as an attorney. Um, why are these 16 records that would, if, they're, if it's what we're told, seem to suggest that Trump uh, was aware of the actual process? Why would they be important uh, to the special counsel's probe? And, and do you think that this could suggest that he's nearing a conclusion of his probe, Special Counsel Jack Smith. Well, we know one of the crimes that the Special Counsel is looking at is the possible mishandling of classified materials, which requires that you knowingly remove them without proper authorization. Now, his, he and his legal team, they've put out a couple explanations for how these classified materials were removed. One is, of course, the automatic 
uh, declassification, which is, of course, false. But his lawyers have also argued that, in fact, it was the process that was flawed. And these things, some of them were inadvertently packed away. So if you have these records where the process was explained to him, it could help prove in part that he knew how this was supposed to work and he just chose to ignore it. Now, in terms of where are we in the investigation, this letter in and of itself does not necessarily suggest that we're at the end of the probe. But we know from our other reporting with the rest of our team, based on the witnesses we've seen, the loose ends they're tying up and the other work that they're doing, that they are likely in the final stage of this investigation, but it's unclear when the final report will be submitted. So, Evan, the the special counsel really seems to be honing in on whether Trump knew the declassification process, the actual one, not the fake one. Well, the the, the issue for the special counsel and for the Justice Department in all of these cases, right, is to prove intent. Uh, And every defendant uh, will say, well, I didn't really know that I was breaking the law. And in this case, you're dealing with a former president, right, who has uh, this ultimate classification and declassification authority. And I'll say, look, as laughable as his claim is that just by thinking it, I declassify, nobody's ever tested the limits of what the president can and cannot do with declassification. So for the Justice Department, they have to... I think they're moving very cautiously. They're trying to make sure that they have everything ready if Jack Smith decides to prosecute the former president in just a historic decision, right, to prosecute him for uh, possessing documents after the government had had given him a subpoena and after which he knew that these documents should have been returned. So these 16 uh, documents from the National Archives that would seem, if they are as as billed, uh, to suggest that Trump knew the process. He knew the actual declassification process. Trump could go to court to try to prevent the National Archives from giving them to special counsel Jack Smith. What's his track record when it comes to that? Not great so far. The special counsel has been very aggressive in trying to pursue uh, all sorts of evidence, be it from witnesses, uh, from documents, trying to get around various privileges, be it executive privilege, attorney-client privilege. While well, the former president has not been successful in blocking most of those, though at least one of them is still pending, But we have to remember, they continue to do this even though they lose. And I've asked some of his attorneys, well, why do you keep challenging it? Well, part of it is the sport, that the former president is incredibly litigious. But part of it's also principle. They argue that they want to continue to defend these important questions about executive privilege. So there's a lot of different reasons as to why they do this. There's also just some bad blood between the special counsel's office and the former president's attorneys. They don't speak. Uh, There's no accommodation process here. And even publicly, the former president's lawyers have attacked them, even though their client is under investigation. So again, some of this is just sport for them. But they would argue also that they're trying to protect these privileges. So Evan, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just the Presidential Records Act, although that's one of the things they're looking to. It's also... also handling classified materials. These are, these are two different uh, potential criminal offenses. Right. And uh, don't forget that the, the, the big part of this is obstruction, right? That the former president is under investigation for willfully r- retaining these documents, even after his own lawyers were working with NARA. They acknowledged, essentially, that these were records that should be returned to the government. And they continued to say that they, you know, that, that they, had, they had provided everything when, it, when, when, in fact, they had not, right? So a lot of this is building blocks for prosecutors. Again, if Jack Smith decides that he wants to bring a, uh, that he has enough here to bring a case, these are the building blocks to get to that point, right? To, to be able to say that you were not only disregarding the Presidential Records Act, but all of these other laws that govern the way you handle classified information. The former president... Once he left the White House, was no longer able to just declassify things, right? And so that's going to be key for the prosecutors. Once you leave, 
you can no longer wave that wand, even if you think you have that power. And, and Jamie, uh, Trump has, has tried arguing that he had a standing order for documents that he took from the Oval Office to be declassified. Uh, I think you and others at CNN have looked into that to see if anybody from the Trump White House knew anything about that, right? For the record, let's just remember that all of these claims about standing orders or declassifying, it, they did not come up while he was president. Right. This was all a defense after he was found to have these classified uh, documents. So Trump claimed there was a standing order. We went to 18 senior Trump officials who said there was no such thing. The quotes were ludicrous, ridiculous, complete fiction. Even just one last thing. On the final day that he was in office, he wanted some additional documents declassified. And in the end, what he did was he ordered it declassified, but he, he acknowledged essentially that there was a process that needed, to, needed to, be, to be adhered to for those documents to come out. So the president himself has acknowledged that the process exists, and that's going to be a problem for him when he goes to try to defend himself in the various manners. Oh, interesting. So one time he tried to do the right thing, or maybe more than one, but that's, on the last right. day he tried to do the right thing and tried to do it the right way. Right. That could come back and bite him. Right. Uh, thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. Joining us now. Uh, former Trump White House Communications Director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, along with uh, Senior Advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod. Alyssa, from, from what you observed during your time in the Trump administration and as Communications Director uh, for President Trump in the White House, um, was there an awareness by President Trump and his top advisors of this existing declassification process? So there was certainly an awareness among senior advisors. I, um, I handled classified documents in the West Wing. I can think of at least two occasions where the former president wanted items declassified, frankly, that were kind of in the public space, but maybe not being reported entirely accurately or they didn't have all the information. And some of the senior staff actually ran through the traps of declassifying those that information and was unable to, which, again, to Evan's point, acknowledges that there was an understanding that there is a process. And I want to give credit to people like former National Security Robert O'Brien, who's somebody who would stop something if it was it didn't meet the threshold to be declassified. When I was at DOD, we had to go through derivative declassification training. I mean, there is a process here. It was always an absurd notion that he can just snap his fingers and then that makes that eliminates the chain of custody, the reporting to the the intelligence agencies, you know, the different sort of things that you have to do to make sure that you're protecting sources and methods. David, you were uh, a senior advisor to President Obama. Um, what was your understanding of the process for uh, these classified documents? Jake, <clears throat> this whole discussion is so alien to me, so different from what I experienced in the White House. We were so um, uh, alerted to uh, proper handling uh, of documents, uh, not just classified documents, but unclassified documents. We had to turn in every scrap of paper you know, of ours uh, for the National Archives. And this was made clear to us. Uh, by the White House Counsel's Office. It was drilled into us again and again. Uh, so the idea that uh, the president didn't know uh, what the rules were, uh, it seems absurd to me. I, I'd also point out that there are different levels of this. Evan was getting at this. Uh, you know, obstruction is a big, heavy charge that they're uh, that they're. Uh, obviously exploring. But there's also the Espionage Act. He has classified materials. Uh, you know, the, the question came up, I think Caitlin may have asked him, did he share these materials with anyone else? Um, so 
you know, people rarely get uh, uh, prosecuted. Certainly, they don't get uh, jail time for violations of the Presiden Presidential Records Act. But there are gradations of violations here, uh, and he's under investigation for all of them. And I think his answer to Caitlin when she asked about that, about if he had shared any of those classified documents, was it was it was not a 100 percent no. It was something like, I don't remember right. do, doing so. I don't think I did. Um, Alyssa, uh, you right. you understand Donald Trump's psychology, uh, at least as as well as anyone. Um, why did he take these classified documents, do you think? I mean, obviously, those letters from Kim Jong-un. You know, he loved those letters. They meant a lot to him. It, 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 you know, there was there was a reason for that. He was proud of the relationship. But but this is boxes and boxes. And that's going to ultimately be the million dollar question in the investigation. Um, if there ends up being anything that there's an outside value to or there's something that an ally or an adversary could benefit from and that there's any notion that he may have shared that, that's when things become very problematic and you get into the Espionage Act territory. Um, the, the notion, as I see it, is these are kind of two separate areas. So, of course, there's the Presidential Records Act, which is as simple as, Jake, if you had texted me when I was in the West Wing about official matters, I would have literally been required to screenshot your text and then send it to my email in the White House that archived, because that is a presidential records. But the, the classification side of this is so important and so serious. And that's, I think, where the special counsel is going. We're probably never going to find out specifically what was in the documents he took, nor should we, because they, because of the level of classification, they pose a risk to national security. But I think that's what the special counsel needs to get at and at least be able to high level show the public why it was a danger for him to take those documents, regardless of this claim he has, uh, this false claim of blanket ability to declassify. And David, obviously, uh, President Biden is also under investigation for the documents uh, that turned up uh, in different places in the in the in the Biden Penn Center here in D.C., in his garage in Delaware and the like. There's a big difference in terms of willingness to turn it over. Of course, the Biden people alerted yes. uh, the FBI. But do you think that makes this an issue that Biden cannot use against Trump if they do face each other in 2024? And is this an issue that voters care about at all? I mean, it's a really good question. I think it's an issue that they may care about. I don't know if it becomes a voting issue, but it's part of a larger uh, question about a president who flagrantly, wantonly disregards rules and laws and norms uh, that he thinks don't, uh, you know, that he believes don't apply to him. And this is sort of the essential uh, critique of uh, of Trump. But as you know, one of the uh, there's also two questions, Jake, here. How does it re affect the primary nominating process and how does it affect the general election? What Trump has successfully done so far is turned every one of these probes into a persecution of him uh, as the avenging angel on behalf of his voters uh, against the deep state. And this and he, you know, he depicts this as the empire striking back. He's had some success with that. As you know, he gained popularity, at least vote among his voter among Republican voters after the indictment in New York. And the question is, are there how many bricks can this load take or does each brick signify more and more piling on and gives him more energy with his voters? Yeah, interesting. I guess we'll find out. David Axelrod, Alyssa Fair Griffin, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, that paparazzi incident involving Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, a member of their security deal, a security detail is describing to CNN uh, what happened. And Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina will be here. We'll get her take on Democrats in South Carolina trying to block a new abortion ban. Stay with us. 
We are following reports that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were involved in a, quote, near catastrophic car chase, unquote, with paparazzi last night. That's according to their spokesperson. After leaving an event in New York, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, along with her mother, alleged they were part of a relentless pursuit by paparazzi, one that went on for more than two hours. They say they had to switch cars more than once. The NYPD says that while the photographers pursuing them made it challenging, there were not any conclusion, co- collisions and there have not been any arrests. CNN's Ma- Max Foster spoke to a member of the Royals' security detail. Prince Harry and Meghan, along with her mother, Doria Ragland, caught in what they say was a near-catastrophic paparazzi car chase just after this event. A law enforcement official telling CNN they were swarmed by paparazzis in New York City on Tuesday night, followed by photographers on cars, motorcycles and scooters. It was meant to be a night of celebration, with Meghan being honoured for her global advocacy to empower women and girls. Meghan stepping back into the spotlight after keeping a low profile whilst Prince Harry attended his father, King Charles's coronation, alone earlier this month. A spokesperson for the couple said they were involved in the chase at the hands of a ring of highly aggressive paparazzi. This relentless pursuit, lasting over two hours, resulted in multiple near collisions involving other drivers on the road, pedestrians and two NYPD officers. The briefing I received... Uh, you know, two of our officers could have been injured. Uh, New York City is different from a small town somewhere. You shouldn't be speeding anywhere, but this is a densely populated city. New York's mayor on Wednesday sounding the alarm over the incident, calling it irresponsible. I realized they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. The chase in New York speaking to all the fears that Harry has been so vocal about, including in a recent Netflix series, since his mother, Princess Diana, died following a high-speed car chase in Paris in 1997. Prince Harry's team told CNN half a dozen blacked-out vehicles were involved in Tuesday's chase, driving on sidewalks, running red lights and reversing down a one-way street. The couple left the UK for a life in North America in 2020, partly over press intrusion, examples of which Harry recounted in his recent memoir, Spare. And even after leaving the UK, his fight with the British tabloids in court continues. Harry, in March, appeared at London's High Court for a legal case against the Daily Mail and last week, on the first day of a phone-hacking trial, receiving an apology from the Mirror Group newspapers. A spokesperson for the couple urged that images obtained from Tuesday's car chase should not be disseminated and reiterated that being a public figure should never come at the cost of anyone's safety. The New York Police Department said that although photographers made the couple's journey challenging, there were no reported collisions, injuries or arrests. And no comment from Buckingham Palace, which represents King Charles. No uh, comment either from Kensington Palace, which represents uh, Prince William. Uh, in fact, I'm um, hearing from the Sussex side, Jake, that um, no one's reached out from the family behind the scenes either to see if they're OK. So we, we understand that they changed cars a number of times. A, a cab driver uh, told The Washington Post on the record that, that he was one of their drivers and that he would not consider... Uh, this to have been a a car chase. Uh, What are you hearing about that? 
So they changed cars a couple of times. Uh, I don't think they're suggesting there was a high-speed chase. I think there's, you know, that was a, the initial kind of rumour across social media. Uh, they're saying they were trying to stick, the security detail were trying to stick to the rules of the road and the speed limits. Uh, there was a lot of chaos around them, so it went on for a long time. But they're not suggesting it was a big chase. They were much more concerned about what was going on around the cars and, uh, you know, pedestrians and other vehicles uh, having some sort of collision. So they were fearful for other people's lives, but not the lives of the people in the car itself. Yeah, understandably traumatic uh, for the prince who, who's lost his mother uh, during a, a horrible chase by paparazzi. Thank you so much, Max. Coming up next, the marathon efforts by Democrats happening now, trying to block South Carolina's new uh, six-week abortion ban. In our health lead, it has been a pivotal 24 hours in the move by conservative lawmakers coast to coast to ban abortion. In Nebraska, Republican lawmakers secured enough votes to fold a proposed 12-week abortion ban into a bill that would ban hormone treatments, puberty blockers, and gender reassignment surgery for minors. In North Carolina, in a late-night vote, the Republican-led state House voted to override their Democratic governor's veto of a 12-week abortion ban. That 12-week ban will now go into effect on July 1st. Today in South Carolina, Democratic state lawmakers in the minority there are taking drastic steps to try to stop the passage of a six-week abortion ban. They have filed 1,000 amendments for a bill that has already passed the state Senate. CNN's Diane Gallagher is in Raleigh, North Carolina, where abortion rights advocates are expressing dismay. North Carolina, the latest southern state to add new restrictions to abortion access. When women's health is on the line, I will never back down. But even a veto by the state's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, was no match for the legislature's Republican supermajority. Both chambers voted Tuesday along party lines to override Cooper's veto, banning most abortions after 12 weeks with exceptions. Also adding new steps like multiple in-person appointments for a medication abortion and a host of restrictions, regulations and licensing requirements that Republican leadership calls mainstream. Senate Bill 20 is common sense. It balances protecting the life of the unborn child. It balances that with a woman's need for life-saving care. But state Democrats, medical associations, and abortion advocates say the changes will put more lives in danger. It feels like a slap in the face, a muzzle on our mouths, and a straitjacket on our bodies. Meanwhile, in South Carolina, protesters making their voices heard today as lawmakers in the state house reconvened after debating for more than 12 hours on Tuesday on an abortion bill that would ban most abortions as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. So what you are currently advocating for is real. This is affecting women in your district and in your state. This is detrimental. South Carolina's General Assembly finished its legislative session last week, but Republican Governor Henry McMaster called lawmakers back for a special session to continue to work on the bill. So let me say this, it is, you know, that some of these amendments have looked frivolous and absurd. Prior to Tuesday's debate, Democratic lawmakers filed over a thousand amendments to the proposed abortion ban and warned they plan to try to make fellow lawmakers debate every one. I want you all to know that the Republicans have left the room. Because women are not important. 
enough in this state for them to stay in their seats and listen to the debate of how important women are. With North Carolina's new law and South Carolina on the cusp of passing an even stricter ban, abortion in the Southeast since the Dobbs decision last year is becoming increasingly difficult to access. And those Democrats in the House there in South Carolina are continuing this filibuster by amendment, if you will, about 19 hours in total so far. And I am told just a few moments ago by text from a member there on the floor, they are going to keep going as long as they can. There are still several hundred amendments to go. They tell me they're not sure how long the Republican speaker is going to allow this to proceed. Many of these amendments have been killed in large batches uh, by the House there, Jake. But they say that they are going to make it as painful as possible, even though they know they don't have the power to stop it, for the Republicans to get this through during that special session. All right, Diane Gallagher in North Carolina. Thank you so much. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina has urged her colleagues to try to find some sort of middle ground on abortion. I'm going to ask her next about the marathon efforts to block the abortion ban in her state. Stay with us. We're back with our national lead. Uh, A look at the South Carolina State House floor right now, live, where representatives are currently debating a bill that would ban abortion after six weeks. The Democratic representatives have filed a thousand amendments in an attempt to delay the vote in a long shot attempt to possibly block the bill. Joining us now is Republican uh, U.S. Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Uh, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So this abortion bill being debated in your home state of South Carolina would ban abortion essentially after six weeks, with some exceptions up to 12 weeks. What's your take on this legislation? Well, my understanding is this bill will pass the state house this week. They've gotten through about over just over half of those 1,000 amendments and will make it to the governor's desk to be signed into law. I have grave concerns as a rape victim about the reporting requirements for rape victims within this legislation. Uh, one of the things that we have to do is show compassion to women who've been raped and girls who are victims of incest. And requiring reporting of their rapes to law enforcement doesn't do that. I can't imagine the horror a woman who's been raped would have to go through to relive that rape, relive that trauma, um, if it's reported to sheriffs or to other law enforcement agencies in the side, in the, inside the state of South Carolina. And the other thing that the bill does is it goes, it has, it's a six-week bill, but the exceptions only go up to 12 weeks for rape and incest. And I believe that those requirements should be further along to 15 weeks or 20 weeks. Um, we want to make sure that victims have enough time to process what they've been through and, and, see what, and do what they feel needs to happen throughout their case and throughout the trauma that they've just experienced. Yeah, just uh, for those uh, watching, the, the bill, you can't just claim to be a victim of rape and incest right. uh, to be able to get an abortion legally in South Carolina after this becomes law. You have to have filed, I believe it's a police reporter restraining order. Correct. Uh, and uh, my understanding of the realities of survivors of rape and incest is a lot of them are very reluctant to come forward uh, at all, right? I mean, that's, that's, the last that, thing, yeah, that's your yeah. concern. No, the last thing you want to do as a victim of rape is to relive the rape that you've had by having it having to report it to police. 
the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, the horror, the trauma, the mental and physical trauma that you've gone through. I can tell you, I was horrified to tell my mother. It took me seven days to tell her what happened to me. And I was a wreck. And when I dropped out of school, I was suicidal for months afterwards. It was a horrific experience. And, and we see a lot of stories about rape and rape victims. And whenever they come into the media, once those reports that they're made public, those women are dragged through the mud. Their reputation's tarnished forever. And so reporting, reporting it to police is the last thing many women want to do. And when you look at the, the ability to collect evidence, usually there's not enough time to. There are hardly ever any convictions for rape. Uh, we have over 100,000 rape kits on the shelves across states nationwide today that aren't in CODIS, that haven't been processed. Those victims won't see their day in court anytime soon. Yeah, not to mention, of course, victims of incest who live, right. obviously, quite often they live with their, uh, their rapists. Um, how concerned are you that if South Carolina, if this does become law, this six-week ban, uh, that women will not have any access to abortion in the Southeast? Because obviously abortion is severely restricted or banned in, in Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, and now North, now North, North Carolina, all of them with restrictions up to 12 weeks. Right. My, my focus has always been on the victims of rape and incest. That's some place where we can find a lot of middle ground. The other thing that we need to put profound significance and investment in is access to birth control and contraception. Uh, we want to make sure that where abortions are going to be banned, that women have access to birth control so that there is there's not an unwanted pregnancy. And we know that in the state of South Carolina, there are 14 counties across the state that don't have a single OBGYN doctor. And that's the case in many states across the country. I have filed bills to protect women and their access to birth control. I'm working on a rape kit bill right now. I filed legislation earlier this year that if a woman finds herself with an unwanted pregnancy and wants to give her baby up for adoption, that she has the financial resources, the prenatal care, the medical care, the health care she needs to give her baby up for adoption. Adoption. I'm working on legislation now to address foster care in states where abortion's been banned. What are we going to do with the children who are unwanted, who are who are born? We want to make sure we have a, a stronger foster care system. We also have to strengthen child care in this country for those children who are born who are unwanted. And so those are all the things that we should be working on, especially in states where abortion's been banned so early on at six weeks. Do you think that your party will face any sort of electoral blowback for these bans, many, many of which uh, do not align with polling in terms of what people want. Even in conservative states, people want, uh, in many polls, some sort of middle ground, maybe a 12-week ban, a 15-week ban, uh, no ban for victims of rape and incest, et cetera. Do you think that your party will suffer at the polls? Well, we suffered in 2022, and I do believe we'll suffer in 2024 if we don't have a message that shows compassion to women, both for women's rights and the right to life. You can balance the two. I would garner that if you were to do a ballot referendum on abortion in a conservative state like South Carolina, the majority of voters would not be supportive of a six-week ban that allowed very few exceptions for a very short period of time and required women to have their rapes reported to police. That's really not going to fly with most people, whether they're men or women. I saw this in my own district, in a very purple district last year. I saw how the issue swayed voters. It was the number two issue in our race. I ran, I even ran TV ads talking about rape. I was 
was probably the only Republican in the country who was willing to have that very uncomfortable conversation because I wanted women to know that I was going to fight for them regardless of their circumstances, especially for the worst that has happened to those women, those children who are victims of incest. Yeah, I, I didn't say it earlier, but I, you know, I'm so sorry about what happened to you, Congresswoman. It's not thank, your fault. I know, but thank you so much for, 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 for being brave and, and talking about it. We appreciate it, Congresswoman uh, Nancy you. Mace. Really appreciate it. Coming up next. Thank you, Jake. Hear the audio, raising questions uh, about the health and cognitive abilities of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Back in our politics lead, uh, new doubts today about the cognitive abilities of 89-year-old Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. It has only been one week since she returned to Capitol Hill after a three-month absence, but as CNN's Jessica Dean reports, Feinstein's answer, answers to some reporters' questions are renewing previous doubts about her ability to serve. Good morning, Senator Dianne Feinstein's fitness to serve under a fresh round of scrutiny since she returned to the Senate following a months-long absence to recover from shingles. The 89-year-old has faced similar questions about her ability to serve in the past several years. But those questions, and even criticism, have intensified in recent weeks, as some on Capitol Hill and beyond wonder if she's healthy enough to continue working. What made you decide that now is the time to come back to the Senate? I felt better. On Tuesday, Los Angeles Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes recorded this exchange between himself and Feinstein. What have you heard? What have I heard about what? About your return. How have they felt about your no, return? No, I haven't been gone. Okay. Um, you should follow me. I haven't been going. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Please, either know or don't know. He later said she may have been confused about his question. But Feinstein is far from the first senator to draw such questions. Senator Strom Thurmond served until he was 100. West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd died in office at 92. Both men faced similar concerns from their colleagues. Senate Majority Whip and Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee had this to say when asked if he's confident she's fit to serve. I can't be the judge of that, but I will tell you that uh, she has to make that decision for herself and her family. Uh, as to going forward. Durbin and others have refused to say if they think she should resign. She's a dear friend. As a friend, you can see she's hurting. She's my friend. And the and I, I, only thing I can say is that she's a wonderful, beautiful person, tremendous public servant. Her prolonged absence on the Judiciary Committee has meant Democrats did not have the votes to move some nominees out of committee. We're glad she's back, and she was present for key votes in the committee last week and on the floor. In recent years, Feinstein has either been forced to give up or has voluntarily given up powerful positions. Senate Democrats denied her the powerful Judiciary Committee chairmanship in 2021, following her performance in the confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Feinstein also passed up the position of serving as president pro tem of the Senate in January due to health issues. We have not seen the senator here on the Hill today, including at this morning's Judiciary Committee meeting, Jake. But there's one last round of votes coming up here at 5 o'clock, and it includes a nominee who Democrats might need her vote for. So we are thinking we might see her a little bit later today. Jake. All right, Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Coming up next is CNN exclusive new evidence that may undercut Donald Trump, uh, who claims he was able to automatically declassify documents. Stay with us.
Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. This hour, right now, South Carolina Democrats are trying to stop state lawmakers, Republicans, from passing a six-week abortion ban and become the latest state to make access to abortion near impossible. This as CNN talks with some women in their 20s who say they're choosing to be sterilized instead of risking an unwanted pregnancy. Plus, Harry and Meghan claim they were chased by paparazzi through New York City for two hours. The royals even had to hide out inside an NYPD police precinct to get away safely, according to sources close to them. But one of their drivers, the cab driver, says it wasn't that aggressive. And leading this hour with a CNN exclusive about the Justice Department special counsel investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified materials that he took from the White House to Mar-a-Lago and the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago last year. Multiple sources tell CNN the National Archives has informed Mr. Trump that it plans to hand over to special counsel Jack Smith 16 records from Trump's time in the White House that may provide critical evidence showing that Trump and his top advisors were actually aware of the actual declassification process during his time as president. Trump's public comments seem to suggest that the declassification process is quite simple. Listen to what he told CNN's Caitlin Collins in that CNN town hall last week. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? I had every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Do you still have any classified documents in your possession? Are you ready? Do you? No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. The source close to Trump's legal team tells CNN that the former president may go to court to prevent the presidential records from being handed over, the ones that suggest he knew the actual declassification process, not that invented one. He just told Caitlin. Uh, but he will only have about a week before the National Archives says they're giving the records to the special counsel. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed joins us. Now, Paula, what does this letter uh, mean, this letter from the National Archives, mean for special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Jake, we know the special counsel is looking at several potential crimes, including the possible mishandling of classified materials. And it appears that he's focused on these records because these will help answer a question about whether the former president knowingly removed classified documents without authorization. Because according to this letter, exclusively obtained by our colleague, Jamie Gangel, the archive says that these 16 records in question all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you, former President Trump, personally, concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records. Now here, if these records could show that the former president was on notice of this process and chose to ignore it, that could help the special counsel as it contemplates whether or not to pursue charges against the former president. Though at this point, Jake, it is not clear from our reporting whether anyone will be charged with mishandling classified materials. So, uh, Paul, investigators seem to be working to get to Trump's intent, what he knew when he took those documents. Why is that important? And do you think that any of this suggests that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is nearing the end of his probe on this issue? Well, the first part of that question, as they contemplate whether they want to file a charge of possibly mishandling classified documents, they would need to be able to prove that he knowingly removed these without going through the proper authorization channels. That's why these documents are critical to getting at that question of intent. 
In terms of whether this indicates where they are in the investigation, Jake, this letter in and of itself doesn't tell us where they are in the probe, but our other reporting with our justice team does suggest they are likely in the final phase. If you look at the kind of witnesses that they're calling, including former Vice President Mike Pence, we don't know if they've spoken to former Chief of Staff uh, Mark Meadows, but they really are getting to that top tier of witnesses, recalling other people based on what we know about the kind of things that they're doing now. We do think that they are in the final stretch, but it's unclear when that final report will be submitted. The other question, Jake, is how many other court battles will there be? As you noted, the former president's legal team could challenge this. That would extend this out a little bit longer, but it's unclear if they will file a challenge, though I am told by someone familiar with their thinking that one of the reasons they want to file this challenge, even if it may not be successful, is because they want to continue to defend both constitutional and presidential privileges. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's bring in former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He's now a CNN senior political commentator. Uh, Congressman, what's your reaction to this uh, exclusive reporting that the National Archives uh, is apparently going to give the special counsel these records showing that Trump uh, was fully aware of the declassification process and apparently just ignored it. Yeah, well, first off, it's good reporting. Um, but let me just say this. It's, it's this idea that Donald Trump thought that he could just declare things declassified. I mean, I get it. You have to prove this in a court of law, so that's a bit of a different standard. But let's just put it through the smell test. Back when there were a lot of his allies pushing him, in fact, this may be some of the 16 documents. Remember, he had a lot of allies pushing him to declassify things around the Mueller investigation or around the Russia investigation, they all knew by their own admission that there was a process to declassify things. The president can't just take stuff home and thereby deem it declassified. So I think what's interesting is on the front end, if this is showing, and I don't know, but if this is showing or attempting to show that the president knew that he shouldn't have taken those documents without declassifying them, I think that's potentially even a bigger like an additional charge to what appeared to be an obstruction of justice case. Cause where it peer, appeared that they had evidence was when the president found out that this was classified, he tried to, uh, to obstruct law enforcement or obstruct the archives from getting a hold of this information. If, and again, this is just an if, cause we don't know what's in those documents. If this is showing that from the outset, he knew he shouldn't have taken those, this could be even bigger. So uh, either way, I, I think, look, Americans, in their heart of hearts, know that the president knows he can't just deem things declassified ipso facto after the fact. You were on the uh, January 6th uh, special committee, obviously. Um, did you learn anything during your participation in that committee that speaks to Trump's attitude when it comes to classified documents? Well, not really specifically on that, but you know what you see is, and, and you saw this through the January 6th investigation, for instance, when the former president said, to the Department of Justice, just say the election was corrupt and let me do the rest, me and the Republican congressman. The former president has this idea, and, and I mean, it's not far-fetched because it's kind of worked for him, where he can just declare things to be the case. For instance, I can just take classified material home and it becomes, it, I deem it declassified at that point. And as long as he has a significant amount of, you know, the media that supports him, a significant amount of voters that believe that, uh, he's in good shape. And, and, to date, that has worked out. So I think from the thing that we would see from the former president on the January 6th committee is he could just declare things, he could just say things, and people would believe it. And I think that's what you're seeing in this attitude here when it comes to these. Like every, almost every former president and vice president apparently has had classified in their possession. That's not the issue. The issue is 
when they found out about it, what did they do? Right. And that's what we're going to probably learn a lot more about. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks so much. Good to see you. Let's discuss with our political and legal experts. Tom Dupree, um, if these 16 documents uh, that the National Archives says they're going to turn over to the special counsel, Jack Smith, if they show that Trump had been informed uh, in detail about the declassification process, which of course is not just, I think that it's declassified, therefore it magically becomes declassified. Um, is there anything that uh, the special counsel would need to do before bringing a charge? Or do you think that would be enough for a charge in and of itself? Well, I think he'd need other evidence. In other words, he'd need to obviously show kind of what documents were held, the timing and all of that. But it would be a key element of what the special counsel would need to prove. In other words, we've already seen the president's legal defense here in all likelihood, at least part of it, is going to be I declassified them when I removed them from the White House. And if the special counsel can show that that argument is a total sham, that in fact the president knew the opposite, he knew that by taking them out of the White House, it wouldn't have the effect of declassifying them, that goes a long way toward establishing motive, not just for the initial removal of the documents, but for everything that followed, for all the pursuit of these documents at Mar-a-Lago. If Trump knew all along he never should have had them, that's a big deal for the special counsel. Do you think, assuming that Jack Smith does actually go forward and, and bring some sort of charges related to this, do you think that that will have any impact whatsoever on Trump's standing among Republican members of Congress, Republican officials, and Republican voters? Well, those are different constituencies, to be sure, well, right? okay. Yeah, I mean, no, I, look, I, mean, I think... There is a possibility, it's not one that I think is necessarily one I would bet a lot of money on, that the slow accretion of more baggage, more hassles, there's always something going on with this guy, hits a critical mass point when Republican voters are starting to pay attention to the primaries, which they are not now, and they're just going to say, look, I like the guy's policies, but like we need someone with less baggage, younger, blah, 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 blah. That's possible. I think for leaders of the party, for members of Congress— they're there psychologically, a lot of them, but they're not there politically because the voters haven't gone that way yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one wants to, you know, there are all these closet normals on the Hill who would very much like to move. Closet normals. Yeah, would very much like to move beyond the Trump era, but they can't until the voters do. You want to out them for us right now? Or? <laughs> yes, a lot of them. <laughs> uh, Kirsten, so uh, obviously special counsel is also investigating uh, President Biden, and we should, you know, we should point out it's not the same thing. He did have classified documents, but they found them, the, the, the Biden people, and then alerted uh, the authorities and have, you know, provided them. Yeah. Um, but do you think politically that really does, not to mention the Pence matter, they did the exact same thing as Biden. They found some documents and ter- you know, alerted people. Do you think that makes it more difficult politically for Democrats to say, you know, to, to use this incident with Trump as an issue? No, I don't think I don't think it makes it more difficult for Democrats to say that. I think it makes it easier for Republican voters, though, to say it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So so Republicans will come in and muddy up the waters and sort of say it's the same thing. And then the voters can go, oh, there's our out. Like, here's how we get around having to be upset about this because everybody does it. Right. I think the thing for me that I don't entirely understand is the idea of a president who doesn't understand that there's a classified system for right. documents like the average television viewer understands that, right? If you've ever seen, a, like, movies about, like, the White House or anything with the intelligence community, like, we know this. Everybody knows this. So we're supposed to believe that the president of the United States didn't know that there was a system in place that he needed to, well, that he was surely briefed on. I mean, yeah. there's no question. Um, but also that he would even need to, if he somehow forgot the briefing, ask somebody. It's just not, it's not plausible. I don't even understand why this is the standard. You know, that it has to be intent. I mean, if Donald Trump murders somebody and he says he's never heard of murdered, then is he off the hook? Why is he 
Why is he only responsible if there's intent? Well, answer the question. Yeah, it's a great question. I I think the answer would be, look, that if you had a situation where it was unclear exactly what the president's responsibilities were, or if it was unclear precisely how a president will go about declassifying documents, you could at least construct a plausible legal argument to say, (laughs) look, my lawyers told me this is what to do. So I think that there would be room for this kind of advice of counsel defense. I think in this particular situation, it's difficult for two reasons. One is because if some lawyer was actually saying you can declassify by taking it out of the White House, well, that lawyer should be disbarred. That's terrible. Advice is obviously wrong. And number two, what we're hearing now is the lawyers were apparently giving him the opposite advice, saying you can't do that. And yet he knew that, but apparently disregarded. So it. I have a slightly different, admittedly subtle problem with this, which is that, yeah, the legal argument about declassification and the process argument, totally legit. Let's have that argument. Let's have that discussion. But the actual documents, right? They're classified for this thing called a reason, right? Right. And like, let's say there were the nuclear codes. Trump says, well, like, I declassified them, so there's no problem with me taking them and just keeping them on my desk at Mar-a-Lago. It's like, maybe, even if that were legally true, there's a huge judgment problem involved here where he's taking stuff that's classified for a really important reason and saying, I can show it off to my friends when they visit me in Mar-a-Lago because that's fun. Right. As if, like, the actual secrets don't matter. And, and can, I just, can I just note... Somewhere Hillary Clinton's head is yeah. exploding, right? I mean, like one of the reasons that Donald yeah. Trump is president is because Republicans successfully made the argument that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, was cavalier and did not take seriously enough the classification process mm-hmm. for her home email server. An argument I, I agreed with, by the way. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's a wrong argument. Right. We we covered it, we took it seriously. It's been mocked by liberals, but her emails, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, that was one of the reasons Donald Trump is president. Well, I mean, I'm sure we've got, you've gone into this a million times, but the viewers should know, like, what happens when this information gets out? It puts people's lives in danger. I mean, it's really serious. It's not just the secrets of the United States, which it is a lot of time. It's the sources that are getting this information are endangered. So it's, it's an extremely serious thing. And it was, I think it was serious with Hillary. And I think, I think, I think this is vastly more serious, though. I mean, Because it's the actual this documents is actual, and boxes well, and, and boxes. It's, I mean, yeah. this is, yeah, this is... Just and just the like flagrancy with which he's done it, and the way that he's defending and claiming that he has the right to do this is not. That's not the same thing that happened but, with Hillary. But, yeah, no, but I mean, like literally, they were yelling at the Democratic. I mean, at the Republican National Convention, lock her up, yeah, <laughs> lock her up about this exact issue. It, it, I mean, obviously, he's the president; she's the Secretary of State. Different. But is there any substantive difference here? There's not a lot. Look, it's all nuance. It's all fact. It's all trying to draw very, very fine distinctions that I think will be lost, frankly, on on most people. To me, at least, one of the interesting things here is that I can't think of another time in our nation's history where the National Archives has become one of the key suppliers (laughs) to a grand jury investigation, right? Right. That just doesn't happen. It's another unique aspect of the Trump era. And I think, actually, it will be interesting to see if the Trump team can prevent the release of these documents. We've heard that they're going to argue privilege. They're going to argue that they're protected because apparently it's advice from his lawyers. We'll see what the courts do with that. But it is interesting how so much of what we're learning now behind the scenes was, in fact, advice from Donald Trump's lawyers to the president himself. Fascinating stuff. Great to have all of you on. Thank you so much. Coming up, the paparazzi chase Harry and Meghan are describing as near catastrophic. But a New York City cabbie who drove them, he's now talking about the chase. What does he have to say? Plus, an update on those horrific murders of four Idaho college students. Why this means a suspect will be in court next week. That's ahead. Prince Harry and wife Meghan Markle say they were involved in a near-catastrophic car chase with paparazzi last night in Manhattan. They allege a, quote, relentless pursuit 
They say it lasted for more than two hours. New York law enforcement officials say that it was clearly annoying and uncomfortable and dangerous, but there were not any accidents and there have not been any arrests. Tonight, the New York City cab driver who drove the Duke and Duchess of Sussex for some of their trip, they changed cars a few times, says the chase wasn't really all that aggressive. Crossing on 67, going cross town, and I see a security guard ask me if he wants, uh, if I want a fare, and I said of course. And then next he pull over, and next minute you know they were humping, jumping him back into my cab. We were just making left turns and right turns, and that's it. They were not being that aggressive while they were driving behind us. CNN's Jason Carroll's at the police precinct where the couple had to shelter in place during the incident. A near catastrophic car chase with paparazzi. That's how the spokesman for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex described what happened to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and her mother immediately after they left an event in New York City Tuesday night. A member of the Duke and Duchess's security detail called the incident chaotic, telling CNN it involved a dozen vehicles, including cars, motorcycles and scooters that were jumping curbs and running red lights. The NYPD did not report any collisions, injuries or arrests, but a law enforcement source called the incident dangerous and said there were several close calls between the car the Duke and Duchess were driving in and the car behind them, and said an NYPD protective detail following the couple had to use evasive maneuvers. The Duke and Duchess released a statement that said, in part, the relentless pursuit lasting over two hours resulted in multiple near collisions involving other drivers on the road, pedestrians, and two NYPD officers. New York City Mayor Eric Adams questioned whether their pursuit was two hours, but chastised the paparazzi. You shouldn't be speeding anywhere, but this is a densely populated city. I thought that was a bit reckless and irresponsible. The couple took refuge at the NYPD's 19th precinct on the Upper East Side before returning to the private residence in Manhattan where they had been staying. The incident reminiscent of the crash in Paris that killed Prince Harry's mother, Princess Diana, 25 years ago. The late Princess of Wales died from internal injuries after a high-speed car chase and crash involving paparazzi. Princess Diana, who was 36 years old at the time of her death, had faced intense harassment by British paparazzi. <laughs> Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were married five years ago and shared two children, Archie and Lilibet. They have consistently raised concerns about their family's safety, particularly Prince Harry, who has been open about his trauma and grief stemming from his mother's death when he was 12 years old, saying this to ITV in 2019. Every single time I see a camera, every single time I hear a click, every single time I see a flash, it takes me straight back. So in that respect, it's, it's, the, it's the worst reminder of her life. Now that cabbie, Sunny Singh, who picked up the Duke and the Duchess, said that the couple appeared nervous when they got inside his cab. He said he drove them for about 10 minutes, drove them right here to the 19th precinct, the NYPD, for its part, said it's going to be reviewing all sorts of security cameras, including red light cameras, to see if they can identify anyone. Jake? Jason Carroll, thanks so much. As one of the most conservative courts in the nation, here's a key case that could ban an abortion medication, mifepristone. CNN talks to three women in their 20s who say they have chosen to get sterilized due to the current abortion restrictions and their desire to never have an unwanted pregnancy. There's stories ahead.
In our health lead, a pivotal hearing today in the fight over the abortion pill, Mifepristone. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans is considering whether the main drug used in the medication abortion, Mifepristone, should be pulled off the market. The case centers around the FDA's approval of the drug. It's been legal for 20 years. And actions that the FDA took to make obtaining it easier. This all comes after a conservative Texas judge ruled last month that the drug should be pulled off the market, which the U.S. Supreme Court put a hold on while the case continues to play out in various courts. CNN's Joan Biskupic is with us. Uh, and Joan, obviously we talked a lot about this case last month and now it's back before the courts. Uh, it's not just access to the abortion pill that's at stake. It's also the regulatory process of whether the FDA has the right to approve drugs or if random ju- uh, judges here and there can express disapproval and say, well, I don't think the birth control pill should be legal and I don't think Viagra should be legal. Right. And Jake, it didn't sound good for the FDA, not just in this case involving mifepristone, the first drug of the two-pill protocol to end abortions, which most women nationwide use to end a pregnancy, uh, but it, it doesn't sound good also for its authority. Uh, one of the judges, James Ho, a Trump appointee who's pretty conservative, said, you know, what's all this about the FDA can do no wrong? He said that to the Biden administration lawyer. And she answered, you know, that it's, it's not necessarily that they're saying it can do no wrong. In this case, it's that the FDA did something right. Uh, but those kinds of questions really went to the core of FDA authority. And it's the authority to review not just, you know, abortion medication, but all existing and future drugs. And what the FDA is arguing is that, you know, with uh, Department of Justice, Biden administration lawyer representing it down in New Orleans in this case, is saying that the, the studies, the, the scientific evidence that it used was all valid to find that mifepristone is safe and effective and that those findings should not be disrupted by a lower court judge. Now, the Fifth Circuit, as you suggested, is a very conservative court, mm-hmm. as is Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who was the original person who ruled invalidating the FDA approval. They might end up being far to the right on this and not being embraced by the Supreme Court. But given what we heard today, Jake, this is the kind of case that probably is destined to uh, end up in favor of the challengers to the FDA authority and likely to get up to the Supreme Court, where we might actually see a whole different story, given how far to the right these judges are. We'll see. That's right. We'll see. All right, Joan Biskupic, thanks so much. As the fight over access to abortion and abortion medication is ongoing across the country in this post-Roe v. Wade world, we're also hearing anecdotally that more women are opting for sterilization because they're afraid of unwanted pregnancies in a post-Roe world. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen talks now to a doctor who says she's seeing three times more of these requests for sterilization than before Roe v. Wade was overturned. I'm Kara. I had my tubes taken out last week. This is one. Kara Niels, 25 years old, opted six months ago to be sterilized. Danny Marietti, also 25, had a picnic to celebrate her sterilization last July, complete with commemorative cookies. Mariah Marsh also had her tubes removed as a 28th birthday present to herself in January. All three have known for a long time that they don't want children. And after Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, they got sterilized. And I knew that the only way I could really protect myself is to go ahead and get the surgery. Mariah, an admissions officer at Indiana University, has a neuromuscular disease that can make pregnancy risky. 
She said the ongoing legal battle over mifepristone makes her even more grateful she got sterilized. The legal challenge to this drug, one of two used together in medication abortion, could bar its use for abortion nationwide in the future. It does make me happy that I made the decisions that I made because it it validates my thought process, which was they're just going to come for any access to care that a woman can make on her own. Dr. Leah Tatum, an obstetrician gynecologist in Austin, Texas, said she hears this frequently from patients. Their concerns are if medical abortions are no longer accessible, what if their reproductive rights uh, are restricted even further. She says as abortion rights are getting chipped away... I have definitely seen an increase in the request for sterilizations. I see about three times the consults for sterilization as I used to. Women like Mariah, Danny, and Kara... Find somebody in your area, find somebody who's covered by your insurance are secure in their choice as some options for choosing a life without children are being taken away. Now, this might seem like an unusual move for women who are so young, but, Jake, these women told us they're 100% sure they don't want children. The Dobbs decision last year spurred them into action, into actually getting sterilized in this Mifepristone litigation. Well, they say that that litigation makes them very glad that they did make that move. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. In South Carolina, the fight to pass a stricter abortion ban is heating up after the state's governor called the legislature back into session. The state Senate passed a bill in February that would ban abortion after six weeks, and that's, that's frankly before a woman might even know she's pregnant. The bill is now being debated right now in the state house, and Democratic state representatives are trying to stop it. They are, are filing more than 1,000 amendments to the legislation to try to slow down debate and delay the vote. Let's bring in one of the Democratic lawmakers trying to slow this process, if not stop it, State Representative Beth Bernstein. Uh, State Representative Bernstein, thanks for joining us. So you and your fellow Democrats have filed a thousand amendments to this six-week abortion ban that passed in the state Senate. Uh, There is a a rape and incest exception up to 12 weeks, but we should note you have to have filed a police report or or, uh, uh, get a restraining order. Um, Do you think that this is going to work? Are you going to be able to use this delay to convince House Republicans to take a different position, or are you just delaying the inevitable, do you think? Um, unfortunately, we are de- delaying the inevitable, but I think what's important is we're becoming, we are a voice for so many women in this state who don't want this, who want abortion access and who do not want the state to regulate um, these issues. They, The polling is clear that most South Carolinians, more than 78 percent, want abortion access. So it's unfortunate. And the reason these amendments are being filed is so we can have that voice. And so people can understand what we're doing at the state house is we're effectively banning abortion. And I should note that this same bill, the six week abortion ban bill that was passed in this legislature last year was deemed by the state Supreme Court as violating the um, privacy rights that are guaranteed under our state constitution. And that was just decided in January. And now we are coming back to debate this bill yeah, do, under the same, very similar terms, do which you, is unfortunate. You say the polling um, suggests uh, that the six-week ban would not enjoy popular support among the residents of the Palmetto State. And I, and I know Senator Lindsey Graham, who is against abortion, has proposed uh, more of a, I think it's 12 or 15 week uh, ban as some sort of compromise. Uh, we had 
uh, Congresswoman uh, Nancy Mace on the show, also an opponent of abortion, but she said that she finds the, uh, she's a, a survivor of rape, and she said that she finds the, the requirements for rape victims and the 12-week limit uh, to be onerous, and uh, I think she thinks it's, it's cruel. Um, is there any chance that there will actually be repercussions to lawmakers who support that, or are you just in a conservative state and, and uh, this, is, this is how it is? Well, um, I've got to be optimistic, but we are in a very conservative red state. But um, Congresswoman Mays, who I have served with in the South Carolina you know, House of Representatives when she served that one term, and Senator Lindsey Graham would not be advocating for something between 12 and 20 weeks if it was not more pop- if it was not what people wanted. And I think they recognize that um, I by putting all of these amendments on the desk and debating these issues, I think we're highlighting what really uh, women want in this state and in this, you know, in America. And I should say that, you know, we're only we're in a super minority. This is my 11th year in the legislature, my sixth term. And this is the first time we've been in a super minority that the Republicans have a super majority. There are only eight women out of the 36 Democrats to the 88 Republicans, which are comprised mostly of men. And this has been a group effort among the Democratic caucus, particularly the eight women whom we are referring to ourselves as the mighty eight. And I I don't want to um, think that it's just me out there doing this. I mean, it is a group effort. And I'm so proud of, of particularly the women in my caucus who are really becoming voices for all the women in this state, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever you are, we know that this is not what, what we want as women and for our daughters and our future generations. It's, it's just unfortunate that the girls now are going to have less rights than I did growing up, my daughters. Democratic South Carolina State Representative Beth Bernstein, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. The House, the U.S. The U.S. House just wrapped a vote that could bring Congressman George Santos a step closer to getting expelled from Congress. That's next. Moments ago, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to refer an expulsion resolution for Republican New York Congressman George Santos to the House Ethics Committee. Uh, Democrats have been pushing to just expel the embattled New York Republican who has admitted to repeated lies and is currently under federal indictment and pleaded guilty to a crime in Brazil. But Republicans instead opted to send that expulsion resolution to the House Ethics Committee, something of a punt, uh, the Ethics Committee already investigating Santos. CNN's Manu Raju has the latest on Capitol Hill. Manu? Yeah, that's right. This vote just wrapped up the final vote, 221 votes to refer the matter, the expulsion of George Santos to the House Ethics Committee, all Republicans voting in favor of doing that, 204 Democrats voting against that effort, seven Democrats voting present. Most of those Democrats voting present are members of the Ethics Committee themselves. But uh, this came down along party lines because Democrats argue that this is an effort to just protect George Santos. They said that by putting this into the Ethics Committee, it's unclear if the House will ever vote to expel Santos. Santos, in order for him to get kicked out of Congress, would require the support of two-thirds of the full House. Now, the Republicans say that Santos should at least go through this ethics committee process, and then the ethics committee can recommend 
whether or not to kick Santos out of Congress. But there's another wrinkle. There's a question about whether the Justice Department may ask the Ethics Committee to stand down, as is done with other indicted members, because the Justice Department has its ongoing case against George Santos, who's indicted on those federal charges. Earlier today, I asked the Speaker whether or not this could happen, whether or not that the Justice Department could essentially squash this Ethics Committee investigation. He contended he's going to tell the Ethics Committee to go forward. Won't uh, ethics have to wait until justice is done with its investigation and or and the case court case before we get the investigation? What assurances do you have of that? George Santos to resign from Santos's own party voted just now to send this to the Ethics Committee, including several New York Republicans who have been some of the most vocal members of calling for George Santos to step aside, to, to resign. They said that this should go through the Ethics Committee process itself. And one other member, Jake, voted to refer this to the Ethics Committee. George Santos himself appearing on the House floor, voting in favor of an investigation into himself. We'll see what that investigation ultimately yields. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. And our politics lead, former Vice President Mike Pence, is testing the 2024 waters. He's on a, waters. He's on a multi-day swing in New Hampshire, where he is reintroducing himself as Mike Pence, the candidate, not Donald Trump's number two. I've debated Donald Trump many times, just not with the cameras on. I'm, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd welcome the opportunity to bring my ideas forward if I'm a candidate, and uh, I promise to keep you posted on our plans. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now uh, with the latest uh, from Dover, New Hampshire. Um, Jeff, what, what are we expecting to hear tonight? Well, Jake, the former vice president has been uh, meeting with small groups of Republicans here in New Hampshire, which he'll be doing uh, shortly here in Dover. And he's been making the case for what he believes needs to be discussed in this Republican presidential race, beginning with the budget, beginning with the Social Security program that he says is on the verge of uh, growing insolvent. And he does not mention former President Donald Trump very often by name, but he did pointedly essentially compare him to uh, President Biden in terms of the fact that he says both of them are unwilling to talk about the future of the Social Security program, the future of other entitlement programs. So what the former vice president is trying to do is uh, draw a distinction between his candidacy, which we are told is likely to be uh, become official next month if he takes the step to become a candidate. And he said he simply wants to revert the conversation back to uh, the Reagan era, if you will, of fiscal conservatism. But Jake, it's, it's an open question if there is a market for that in today's Republican Party that is still very much Donald Trump's Republican Party. When you talk to Republican voters, uh, they've been uh, receiving him in a respectful way, but it's very unclear if there is room for him in this field. However, his advisors and his outside advisors uh, say he is uh, likely to go forward with this by uh, sort of going back the future, if you will, and talking about uh, fiscal uh, conservatism and responsibility. Of course, that was not a hallmark of his administration with Donald Trump, uh, who he mentions very little, but of course hangs over everything in this Republican race. So, Jeff, a a super PAC uh, just launched, one supporting Pence. What do we know about that? We do know that the super PAC uh, is, uh, you know, 
an alliance of, uh, of old supporters of him, and he's given them their blessing. And this super PAC, largely run by Washington insider Scott Reed, who ran Bob Dole's 1996 campaign, Jeb Henserling, a former member of Congress from Texas, they are putting together a group uh, essentially to um, provide some backing uh, for former Vice President Mike Pence. So essentially putting a ground game in place. And they are going to focus on Iowa, I'm told. That, of course, is uh, the state that begins the Republican no nominating contest, focusing on evangelical voters where they believe uh, have a strong connection with Mike Pence. So he does have uh, some backing on that front. But the question is, is there room for him in this field? He says he's going to try it out and see. Of course, the voters will see how they respond, Jake. All right. Jeff Zeleny in Dover in beautiful New Hampshire. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up on the lead, the grand jury just returned a decision about the Idaho College student murders. Why that means the suspect will be back in court next week. Stay with us. The grad student accused of killing four University of Idaho students last November has been indicted on murder and burglary charges. Brian Koberger is expected to appear in court next week to be arraigned. Gene Casares has been covering this case for us. And Gene, a preliminary hearing was originally scheduled for next month, but this indictment will allow the case to move directly to a higher level court. That's right. The district court, which is the trial court. So what this means is this case is headed to trial because the whole point there was going to be that preliminary hearing. That is where there, it was out in the open. Witnesses would testify. They'd be cross-examined. New information could be learned. That will not happen anymore because, unbeknownst to anyone, prosecutors convened a grand jury. That grand jury is secret. Uh, they are private. And they heard testimony from witnesses. We will never know who because there is an order now sealing all of the witnesses that testified, at least their names, in this grand jury. But the defendant is not able to be present, according to Idaho law. There is no cross-examination. But when, a, when the grand jurors determine that there should be a criminal proceeding, it is now then transferred in the hands of a district court judge. And on Monday, he will be there in court and he will have to enter a plea. And since January, um, lawyers, police, witnesses uh, have all been under gag order. Requests by news organizations to lift that have been denied. What does that suggest uh, about this judge's thinking? Well, obviously, on its face, we could say that this is a very secretive proceeding, right? Because uh, uh, the grand jury determined and heard witnesses, which we will never know about. There's a gag order, so parties cannot speak at all. But the other line of thought is that this is a small community. They want to preserve that jury pool. They do not want to taint prospective jurors because this community owns this case. And many times prosecutors want a community to have their case, to hear their case. On the other hand, they could have done this months ago. This came out of the blue after the dates were established for the preliminary hearing. But let me tell you what to look for next. Idaho is a death penalty state. And will there be notice given by the prosecutors following Monday's proceeding of intent to seek death? Jake. All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. Rain, snow, or sleet may not stop postal workers from delivering the mail, but they are facing a very different threat. Plus, ahead in the Situation Room, a look at the military spy satellite North Korea might be launching in the near future. Stick around. In our national lead, attacks on U.S. postal workers are rising at an alarming rate. There have been more than 2,000 assaults or robberies on postal carriers just since 2020 with more than 300 being reported from October of last year through March alone, according to the U.S. Postal Service. 
Today, members of the House Oversight Committee pressed Postmaster General Louis DeJoy about the issue and asked him why the Postal Police were not better protecting carriers. Here's what DeJoy said about the lack of officers available. If I uh, had 60,000 of them, I would come to you and ask for the authority to do what you're, what you're asking us to do. I don't. I have 600. DeJoy says the Postal Service is partnering with local and federal agencies to combat this issue. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky if you have a, a code at uh, Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead. Whence you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like a, a delicious filet mignon. Uh, CNN continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.